Thanks for listening to the Family Perspectives podcast, brought to you by the BYU School of Family Life Student Editorial Board. I'm Madeline Sorensen. And I'm Tyler Clancy. And today we'll be interviewing Professor Hal Boyd. Professor Boyd graduated from BYU with a philosophy degree. He then graduated from Yale Law School, and he was the editor-in-chief of the Deseret News before joining the faculty at the School of Family Life here at BYU. We're really excited for this conversation today and hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks for listening. Okay, well, welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Boyd. Thanks for coming in today. I'm excited for a great conversation. Grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Professor Boyd, as I was working to write up a succinct bio on you, I have to admit I, I had some trouble. Um, you've had quite an amazing and diverse career uh, that's taken you all over the nation before ending up here at BYU. Can you run us through a little bit about your career, your life's journey, and the winding road it took uh, to get you here today? Well, that's a that's a kind way to put it. I think most people would characterize as a frenetic career, but I appreciate I appreciate you putting in flattering terms. But yeah, I I um when I was an undergraduate at BYU, I had uh, you know considered going to immediately to law school, and for various reasons decided to take a much different path and went immediately into writing uh, and worked as a, a reporter. Uh, first in my career. And then subsequently after graduate school, uh, I ended up working for a university. And from there, uh, worked in the, the both in editorial space and policy space. And then a there was a desire uh, in the School of Family Life to have someone who could teach family law and someone who could write publicly on policy and legal related issues related to the family and related to family life. And so that opportunity arose. And and I was grateful for uh, to be to be recruited and brought into Brigham Young University and the School of Family Life to uh, further some of those aims. And so that was kind of my circuitous road uh, here to BYU. That's really interesting. So, what what was your major in undergrad? So I studied philosophy oh. and then went to Yale, and went to Yale Law School. So those are my uh, my areas, and now teach family law and policy. It's so interesting as we've been doing these interviews. Um, uh, Dr. Levitt, for example, started uh, in a legal career, moved to family life. Um, some started family life from the beginning. So, uh, 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 Dr. Hill uh, started in uh, finance, I believe. And, and so it's really interesting to hear how our faculty uh, became the notorious or <laughs> famous uh, faculty members that they are today. Um, it's interesting to hear that from your perspective, um, because I think on the on the student end, it's interesting to get the backstory, if you will. And I think it's also inspiring. Um, sometimes it's hard to see the light at the end of the t end of the tunnel as a student. What specifically appealed to you um, about coming back to BYU and teaching and doing that role? Um, I know teaching isn't necessarily a multi million dollar profession. So what exactly was it that drew you to come back here? Well, there's no question that my experience at BYU was remarkably formative and foundational for uh, not just in, from a career standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint, from a life trajectory standpoint. And so when the opportunity arose, when uh, this position was opened up and 
uh, some faculty members reached out to me regarding it. I was very animated uh, about the opportunity to come back and in some small way, perhaps give back. Uh, I had been teaching at BYU for about four years, uh, if I remember correctly, in the and teaching uh, philosophy of religion. And so I had already, you know, been very, I've been very involved in uh, the mm-hmm. teaching enterprise and being engaged with students. And I loved it. I love that work and uh, the opportunity to teach family law. Uh, it's, it's such an important topic. And I think, you know, you mentioned the backstory of various professors and how they came to the school of family life. And you have some in finance, some in, you know, a, a marital relationship quality, some in adolescent development. There's a whole spectrum of different uh, uh, areas of emphasis that professors pursue in the school of family life. And I think that is indicative of the breadth of family life, that f- family touches so much in society. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the law is, is something that affects the family, that impacts the family. Of course, vice versa, the family affects the law as well. And of course, finance and, and, uh, and, and relationships, all of these are germane to home life. And what we know about the home is that it is a, uh, it, it, was, it is there in which we form our habits. It is the great mediating institution between the individual and the collective in the sense that the individual, there's always a, a gap, a, a, mm-hmm. a, a uh, space between the individual's desires and the desires of the group as a whole. And the family is the perfect space for the individual to bounce around, to iterate, to try things, to experiment, to uh, to develop their own personality and their own desires, but to do so within the context of group norms and habits and aims and goals, and that the family unit has a cohesive identity to it, a cohesive goal, a, a shape, a contour. And so the individual is formed within that space. And it helps bridge us to the broader community, uh, not just from a state and local level uh, and a congregational level, perhaps, but in a in a global sense, in a almost as a nation, right? And so when we talk about the family as being important to the fiber of the nation or the fiber of our our laws or our constitution, it's in a it's in a very real sense. It is the foundation of those things. It's the wellspring from which that uh, that flows. And so anyways, the opportunity to be able to uh, teach about the family, teach about the law, and to do so to students who will go on to be able to really affect those things, both from a personal standpoint, as in as, as being mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, but also from a potential policy realm, social work realm, legal realm. That was very animating to me. That was very exciting to me. And so uh, it was it was kind of a, uh, a no brainer that I would want to pursue that and want to come back. That's that's a really interesting perspective. And I love uh, your explanation of that dichotomy of how a family in, uh, exists as an as an individual and then also part of a group, whether that's a state or a locality or a nation or a world. Um, and then obviously, too, in a spiritual sense as well. Um, so I think that segues perfectly into where I want to transition to, which is kind of the the realm that you've existed in previously to coming to BYU and, and obviously still um, here uh, as, as you teach is kind of this uh, space of, of public scholarship. 
if you will. And it's taking um, core beliefs, core values, policy uh, issues, and, and, and different things to the public square. So moving it out of um, whether that's your home or BYU and advocating for those ideas that we believe to be true or you believe to be true um, out and about in the in the world. Um, you specifically talked about um, how you've done a lot of writing um, and that's kind of the the emphasis that, that you had um, in your career previously. So as I was preparing for our discussion today, I was trying going through and trying to count how many articles you've uh, published in major news outlets. I lost count pretty early on. Do you have any idea of how many ballpark maybe uh, articles that you've written and published? I, I have no idea. I would say it's it's probably I don't know in the hundreds maybe 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 I've uh, hit you know broken the the ceiling of a thousand. I have no I really have no idea. Nor do I want to take the time to count them. <laughs> well, well, no, I I I just think that's so um, so unique. Um, I think it's fair to say that you're you're really known for your ability to produce quality content that can keep up with the pace of the current news cycle. Um, I remember a, a story you shared with us about. Um, a, a story that broke in, I believe, the Washington Post, and you had literally just a couple hours before daybreak to write uh, a strong uh, article in defense of of a specific um, issue. So, so I want to know, and our listeners, that I'm sure would be interested to hear, what does it take to be able to write, you know, this high level quality at such a fast pace? Do you have any uh, routines, or do you have any uh, process that you use to, to draft articles? Yeah, certainly I did not always have that ability. I don't think it was natural. Uh, it didn't come naturally. It, writing has always been an arduous process for me. And it may not seem that way just because, you know, well, you produce a lot of articles or you can write quickly, mm -hmm. but it's always excruciating and I don't really <laughs> enjoy it. Some people really enjoy writing. I don't, I don't enjoy it, but I see it as, as very important. Uh, as something, you know, I might have some unique ability to contribute. And so I, I see it as valuable, but it's never been easy. Uh, the ability to write quickly and try to write incisively at the same time really began early on in my career when I came out of BYU in my first job as, as a reporter and the deadlines were, were so intense. I mean, it was beyond anything I'd experienced students we you know as students and i consider myself as as continuing to be a student you know we always we think of debt you know we have lots of deadlines and we go to class and there are deadline and and they feel intense but once you get into an industry like that where you have a certain amount of time and there the the paper is going to print and so at a certain point, you have a deadline and have to produce something and your name is going to be associated with it. It drives you huh. to try to perform your best <laughs> in a very short period of time. And it really focuses the mind. And so doing that for enough time, you know, I don't know what month it, it began to click, but you do that enough time, you get enough reps in. Uh, you start to be OK at it and, you know, it sticks with you over over. Uh, over uh, over your career. And so I think I benefited immensely from sort of right after school going to uh, a boot camp, so to speak, of, of writing where mm -hmm. the deadlines were so frequent and so intense that it did train the mind to where you're able to produce something that you could at least put your name behind 
by the time the paper closed. Now, today we live in a somewhat paperless world. And so uh, there's the, the immediacy is more of the, the, the urgent nature of the conversation to be able to participate in it before the conversation leaves. That if you have something important to say that should be included in whatever the issue is that might arise, that you want you have that sense of urgency to say this is really important i don't know if you know there there may not be another person who's going to say it quite like this or in this way and so i really want to have my perspective uh, considered um in the public discourse related to whatever the topic may be at the time and so that's kind of what drives me today uh but yeah a lot of the habits i think i developed as a young writer were born out of the the uh relentless deadline <laughs> and, right. the physical just, paper had yeah, to be pure, printed and, and pure survival you know <laughs> i mean you're in the you're in a job situation where you you know that's the requirement of the job and so you're trying to do the job and yeah. a nice i think ancillary benefit of that was uh, as my career has progressed has been um that the habits that were cultivated through having to do that early on well, I can tell you that's not the answer I was expecting. I was expecting you to say, "Well, I just love it so much." <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, no, you know, by the sweat of your brow. So it's certainly, right. it's, I wish you know, I wish I'd been blessed with, and I know several people who really do have, uh, who just find a, a lot of joy in writing. Often it comes that they're doing something else in life, and writing is a, a sort of a joyful outlet. So I find, you know going outdoors or doing some lawn work okay. or something that okay. to me is joyful. <laughs> this is work. <laughs> this is work. So what, you know, it sometimes makes a difference whether it's, you know, if it's, you're actually doing it for pay, it usually is a little bit more arduous. Right. But I, I do think it's interesting and, and worthwhile to, to note that, um, you know, a, you, you know, you talked about those reps you got. And so for our, for our listeners who might be students or wherever you're at, you know, what we're doing right now makes an impact. You know, you, you, as a philosophy major, I can only imagine how many papers you wrote. Um, and then I also thought what was interesting was too, that the sense of urgency um, and kind of that your your calling, if you will, that motivated you as well. Um, so I think those are two really things, two really interesting things for our listeners to, to pick up on. Um, one of the questions I had on this topic was, is there anyone in particular that you send uh, your first draft to? Usually, is there someone? Well, I always, not in my first draft, but I will always have my wife, Holly, read. I mean, I guess I've scaled it back a bit just because there's so much uh, to have her read, not just of mine, but other things I'm working on and uh, are collaborating with. And so I've I've tried to scale back just to be respectful of her time and that she has another, (laughs) she has many other things that she wants to. But I always, I always have Holly read it, and it's always fun to see her reactions uh, from her, uh, you know, her perspective, especially over, over time. She, she definitely is in the camp that I edit to, uh, to a point of diminishing returns where I start to make the piece worse. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I could edit. My personal (laughs) view is I could edit through eternity. I would just, I could edit the same piece and just continue editing on and on on. (laughs) until I've arrived at some. Now that, now that you're saying that, I think students might be listening saying, "Mm, I don't know if I want to take. uh, (laughs) That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Caveat emptor, as they say, buyer beware. But so, but so you and your wife, um, you know, work together in that aspect. Yeah, she, she's, she's always been an incredible uh, collab collaborator, or just someone to someone who's willing to bounce an idea off of, or tell me where I'm a little off base, or 
uh, often she's very hands off. Usually, you know, she'll just say some things will animate her. Others, you know, are what won't uh, strike her. But I always, almost always run a piece by, by my wife, Holly, and I collaborate with a lot of people. So I, you know, I'm always swapping drafts with those with whom I'm collaborating. So that's awesome. And just kind of goes back to, to the family. So that's right. I didn't yeah. even give you the $5 yeah. bill for, to <laughs> add that part in there. So, yeah. um, well, one of the, one of the many reasons I was excited to host you on here today is, um, because part of your art is persuasion. Um, I don't think that I could be wrong. I don't think that you'd have, you know, hundreds of, of pieces published if you weren't, um, doing the job of persuasion. Um, in a political and cultural climate that seems to be dictated by who's yelling the loudest or who has the best insult, how do you approach persuasion and rhetoric in your writing? Well, I have always tried to be so, you know, I mentioned I studied philosophy as an undergrad and law as a graduate student. But uh, one of the great things of, you know, that drew me the intersection, I think, of, of family life and philosophy is really moral philosophy and and there's a, a lot to unpack there, but that's one of the another reason why I was so drawn to the school of family life. And and I think of the law as kind of being practical philosophy. It's where the rubber meets the road, where philosophy actually impacts people's lives. It becomes policy. Mm. It becomes law. And it's how uh, it's what shapes society. It's what guides society. And uh, some great philosophers have talked about persuasion and 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 rhetoric. And uh, Plato, in particular mentioned something called the rhetorical triangle and this idea that there are these prongs almost like a stool for for the stool to be able to to be sturdy you need these sort of three prongs and one is is uh, this idea of pathos or emotion that we 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 are humans we communicate through stories we communicate through um uh drawing upon each other's interests or bringing each other in through something that we might care about that's really salient to us. And so that's very important, I think, from a persuasive standpoint is to say, why is this relevant to me? You know, give, give me the inf information that's relevant to me. And so that may, oftentimes we think of, as you were mentioning, the, the news cycle. People care about the news, right? They know something's happening, events are happening of importance. And so drawing on the news can be a way of, of of bringing the reader in, of making it relevant or urgent in their lives. Stories, as I mentioned, this is, you know, a very compelling way. We are, we remember stories. We remember stories that may be unusual or stand out or counterintuitive. Uh, if I walked past you today wearing my sort of drab gray coat and uh, plain, you know, uh, plain shirt and necktie, you probably would not remember me in two weeks or remember that I walked by. Uh, of course, you might because <laughs> you're in my class, but uh, if I better, if, if you were to see, that's right. If you were to see someone else, you know, dressed in that way or, you know, who looked more or less of a piece with what people, you know, how people dress or look uh, walking by, you wouldn't remember. But if someone walked past you who was dressed as Big Bird, that would stick in your mind for probably the rest Definitely, of your life. Yeah. And so stories have a way, especially stories that tell something, and uh, you know, uh, an anomalous or something counterintuitive or something compelling. Uh, those stick with us, and so we remember those. And so that's that's part of the first kind of prong of the rhetorical triangle. And then, of course, uh, is this idea of uh, logos, uh, and we talk about you know, persuasion is 
having a compelling argument. So it has to stand up to scrutiny in terms of having a, a, an argument that's supported by evidence, right? And so if we're in a court of law and we're trying to advocate on behalf of our client, we need to be able to support the client's case, their their story, their 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 uh, side of events with evidence, right? And so we enter into the record, Exhibit A, Exhibit B, right? And we provide evidence, we provide witnesses that corroborate the story. And so the same goes for persuasive writing, right? We, we put forward an idea and, and that idea is rooted in evidence and, and supported by uh, argumentation. And that is, uh, that, that is one essential way of persuasion. And then lastly uh, is this idea that we have our ethos, which is kind of, you know, that we, we actually have, uh, we speak with a authentic voice that is rooted in knowledge in the subject. And so, uh, you know, t teaching about family law or writing about family policy, we want to be rooted in the best scholarship. We want to be citing reputable sources. We want to be ourselves informed on the topic so that we can speak uh, authoritatively on it. And then I would add one more. That's kind of, you know, those are mm -hmm. those three are sort of the gold standard for persuasive writing. But I would just add that truly great persuasive writing engages, and I have not always lived up to this at all, especially when you have to, you know, you have a tight deadline or you're writing something very quick, but it gives the other side or the other perspective its due, meaning it takes seriously their arguments. And then provides evidence of why those may need correction or why they might need new, new direction uh, rather than just dismissing them. Or sometimes we call this a straw man. Uh, if you build up a straw man, it's easy to dismantle the straw man, but you really haven't addressed the actual argument of the other side. And so I think truly great persuasive writing allows the other side to have its due but still shows you why you have come to the conclusions you have through your evidence and reasoning. And that makes a very compelling piece of writing because when you read it, you say, well, this person has clearly thought through the full spectrum of uh, opinions on this. And they have come down on this side based on this evidence. And they're not pulling the wools over my eye, wool over my eyes. They're not trying to uh, you know, hide something from me. They're addressing the issue head on and they're addressing counter arguments in a persuasive manner. Okay, so ethos, pathos, logos, and then giving your, uh, the, uh, the opposite opinion, an honest argument, an honest shot, uh, if you will. So I think also what I'm hearing too is that you actually put your philosophy degree to work every single day, so. <laughs> I do. I, I think of it as, you know, moral philosophy. I think we all, I think we all engage in, in moral philosophy. We just don't know we're doing it, but our values, the things we care about the, uh, and particularly with regard to the family, you can't help, but, uh, incorporate moral philosophy, uh, with regard to family life. And so is this something that you teach to your students in, uh, SFL 315, which is the public scholarship class? Yeah, I teach uh, F SFL uh, F three fifteen uh, a writing course, but then we, I teach family law, and so in the family law class, we sort of, I try to you know I try to give them uh, very practical tools with regard to many are going on to do social work, some are going on to law school, okay. uh, others are just interested in engaging in the policy arena in some way, or just having uh, equipping themselves with an understanding of the law 
to for their own lives as uh, as as uh, community members and uh, as members of families or future families. And so I try to give them some grounding in the origins of the law. Where does where does the law come from? Particularly, you know, specifically with regard to the family. Where do we derive the uh, the the communal the communal understandings of family life that then get instantiated into our policies and how do those develop? Uh, what are the things that give birth to law, uh, specifically laws that affect the family? And so, yeah, I tried to provide a basis for that. But then once we kind of a class or two, you know, the philosophy wears old and we get into the nuts and bolts of you know, what the particulars are about divorce, what the particulars are about marriage, you know, how does marriage law work and how does child custody work? And so some of those things, but I think that philosophical grounding allows them to see, well, what are the values? What is the social science? Uh, how does, how does that, how does that uh, work in conversation with the law? Is the law trying to reflect those things and in what way and how and why and what, what the, what is the law and what ought to be the law and how, how does that, uh, how does law change? How does it evolve over time? And so we, we kind of, we, we definitely delve into those discussions alongside the more practical elements mm -hmm. of, you know, here's, here's what you're going to go through, uh, with regard to a custody issue or dividing this an estate, uh, uh, et cetera. Okay. So you teach kind of those baseline principles first. Um, and then move into, as you said, where the rubber hits the road, the law. Yeah. And then we, we kind of circle back to them in many ways with these issues that are heavily disputed. So, you know, issues surrounding uh, 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 reproduction in terms mm -hmm. of uh, abortion or, uh, you know, in, in IVG, which is in vitro gametogenesis, the ability to potentially have children uh through using the genetic material uh, of individuals. And so, um, so we talk about some of these issues that are on the horizon that are still live policy debates that are um, in the news that are discussed. And so, so philosophy, moral philosophy, I would say rooted in social science, but, uh, but also apart from it in some ways or be or going beyond it because many of these questions aren't neatly settled exclusively right. through social science social science allows us to have a pretty good idea of um of you know what is working what what might be improved the state the state of affairs with regards to various issues but many times uh the law and the policy arena does not have the time to wait for uh, you know, twenty-year uh, longitudinal studies to to settle a particular matter, and so right. we also equip uh, students, or I try to equip students with the ability to reason, um, reason about what is good, what is what is moral, what ought to be, um, and uh, we talk about three different kinds of understandings of the law. So you have this notion of legal realism. Uh, and, and this is the idea that the law is what actually is enacted. So sometimes we have laws on the books that are not really enforced, right? So if I get, if I'm driving and I'm going 72 on the highway in I-15 and the speed limit is 70, it's unlikely that I'll get pulled over because it's common that if you're right around the speed limit, there's not going to be an issue. 
but the speed limit on the books is 70. So technically I'm, I'm going over the speed limit, right? But, but that is unlikely to be enforced. And so legal realism would say, well, the law is just what's enforced. So if, if you actually get pulled over at 74, then mm. that's really the law. Now, uh, there's an idea called legal positivism that would say, no, 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 no. The law is 70. And it's not 75, even though you might not get pulled over till 75, because what is the law is what's on the books, meaning it's a, a, a recognized authority has declared it the law, and therefore collectively we recognize it as such because that's the locus, that's where the law is located, uh, the, the, the authority of the law is located in, in these bodies that we, uh, that we recognize as law making rulemaking bodies such as a legislative body or a, a, a judiciary etc mm -hmm. that's positive positive called legal positivism positive. and then you lastly well one of the other heuristics one of the other lenses in, in which we can consider the law is this idea of uh of uh what i uh of moral moral law or uh mm what we would what we would i guess characterize as um in our in our perspective of uh god's law um when i speak to the students at brigham young university and this this is an idea that there is a there's a higher law and in in the philosophical realm we call this natural law and natural law says that there is a ordering whether it's from nature or from god and in this context, we would we would uh, often we'll talk in terms of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a gos uh, restored gospel perspective, and say this is the law ought to be aligned with the highest good, with uh, not just the good, the godly, and uh, so we debate of well, is the law really reflected in our morality and in, in in God's law? And the students will have different perspectives that they'll bring to this. And they'll say, we'll often talk about something like uh, civil rights, where uh, clearly there was a sense that uh, there were injustices, certain injustices that need to be righted mm -hmm. with regard to the law. And those weren't rooted in legal realism and they weren't rooted in legal positivism, but they were rooted in this notion that there was a higher form of justice that needed to be implemented into our laws. And so uh, I often frame it in terms of these three different, and I ask, you know, mm. which one is right, which one is more accurate, which one reflects how law is made. And, and often the answer that they come to after debating how they could see, you know, the law reflect is that all three of these really inform the law. Oftentimes mm. there are natural law ought to and does inform much of the way we order ourselves publicly with regard to our policies and laws, but not everything. Mm -hmm. And that legal realism and legal positivism also play play a role um, as well. Well, for our listeners, if you're listening to this and you're like, I want to engage in this debate, um, we're going to put uh, Professor Boyd's uh, class uh, resources and a couple of his articles in the show notes. So after you finish up listening, you can you can check out those links and and hopefully sign up for you don't have to be a family life major to sign up for the family law class is that yeah, correct yeah we 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 take uh take in all all comers and there's many who are not within the major and uh but yeah we we would love to have you and 
and I'm excited. I would be excited to engage with you, even if you don't take uh, the family law class. Well, we'll make sure to put your email down there too. And, and, and so people can engage that way. Um, well, I think it's been really interesting how we've, we've talked a lot about the principles, the process, kind of the background. I'd be interested to hear, um, and, and, and I guess in a very simple way is tell us some success stories. Ha has this worked? Have you ever had someone reach out to you and say, how you convince me on X, Y, and Z, or were there any articles that you wrote, um, specifically that meant a lot to you that, that were rewarding, you know, kind of all this process and um, not just school, but hitting deadlines when you're a college student, you know, tell us a little bit about the, the end product. What have been some of the bright spots of, of your career? Yeah, I, I've certainly had some positive feedback when you write, uh, when you write someone, someone analogized writing publicly is to sort of going into, you know, uh, Lavelle Edwards stadium and hooking up your laptop to the jumbotron. And then, uh, in the midst of a halftime or something, and then people read, you know, you're writing, you're having 60 some odd thousand or hundred thousand people read your writing and I'll respond to it simultaneously. And so I've certainly had, <laughs> certainly had positive feedback. I've had very negative feedback as well. You know, sometimes the, the highs and the lows stick out for you. And so, yeah, I remember specifically, I think one of the more gratifying uh, pieces I wrote, I went, I once uh, I wrote an article for the Atlantic in response to some information about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I thought it was a little amiss uh, that had been published. And so I responded to that. And uh, the feedback, I obviously, I've received a lot of feedback on that article, but the, this particular piece of feedback came through a friend who is a, uh, teaches at Stanford, and a colleague had approached uh, this individual who's a member of the church, uh, meaning the friend is a member of the church. The, the colleague who approached him was not, and he said, you know, I read this article and it really persuaded me that my attitude toward members of your religious uh, persuasion, your religious denomination, I, that I ought to approach them differently and see things in a different light. And so that mm. was quite, that was one that sticks out that was quite gratifying. I mean, here you have a, you know, a Stanford uh, right. faculty member who felt like, you know what, there was something to learn here that I had maybe misjudged or um, maybe had, hadn't... Uh, comported myself or had an attitude that was slightly uh, askew. And this maybe my article in some small way uh, played a role in, in perhaps um, illuminating that for him or, or providing a new lens for him. And so that was, that was one that was particularly gratifying. I mean, for every example, I could give you a lot of other people, <laughs> the uh, comment section, yeah, giving very, a... getting very mad on Twitter for long periods of time. I won't go into, <laughs> into those. I've been called some, I remember one fellow, um, it just stands out because it was so colorful, but I remember there's some column that responded to something I wrote that said, characterize me as a, uh, a parasite festering on the back of a dung beetle, I think was the oh phrase. So that was, <laughs> wow, it's uh, very descriptive. So I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to persuade uh, that, that that fellow. Person, I can't remember right. the details, but that phrase has always stuck with me. I, huh. I, uh, I thought, you know, that's an apt description. I should get that, get that for, uh, put that on a plaque or something to hang over my office. But uh, yeah, so I've had a lot of uh, very gratifying uh, experiences, but I've always, you know, I've always felt there's been instances where I haven't done a thorough job enough to articulate my views properly or not enough research. And 
But for the most part, when I felt like I've I've done my due diligence and I've written the best I, I could in whatever the particular deadline I was facing, um, that I felt good about it. I felt like mm-hmm. it aligned with what I wanted to communicate. And some some received that very well. Some are persuaded. Some, I think, on the fence might be persuaded. Uh, and others might react very viscerally sometimes, even even with my best efforts to try to think address counter arguments and be thoughtful mm-hmm. and and try to be uh, prudent and moderate in the way that uh, I engage publicly. But yes, sometimes uh, people people are uh, you know are are, are prone to uh, yeah <laughs> the the internet can be a tough tough arena in which to uh, to engage publicly. So so I guess what I'm hearing is the answer is yes. There are have been some great experiences. There's been some negative experiences, but ultimately what you hang your hat on is I gave it um, not just my best effort, but I used I used my heart, I used my brain, I, I put it out there. And, and so it's really com- your, uh, your significance, your meaning, uh, it's coming from within you. You're not necessarily putting something out there and saying, well, I hope people like it or else I'm going to. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that I, I want to be aligned with what I what I believe to be true uh, not just based on my own sort of subjective whim, but what is rooted in social science or what is rooted in research or mm-hmm. what is rooted in, in I'd say, solid moral reasoning of what is good, what is true, what is lovely and of good report and praiseworthy. And we seek after those things. And so I, I strive where possible to do that. I think I've uh, certainly fallen short. I mean, in many instances, um, and I wouldn't you know necessarily excuse myself that's always a deadline or you didn't have enough time. I mean, there's certainly pieces that I have phoned in in my life. But I think when I've really tried to get an issue right and thought it through clearly and and tried to draw on sound research, sound reasoning, that those I I really feel like I could stand by those even if there was a torrent of of those who, you know, were dissatisfied with the article. (laughs) I mean, it's it's I think you have to go by. Uh, a little bit, high, uh, maybe a, a better standard than just the volume of feedback one way or the other, because that can't always, I think it's an important, it's an important guide. I mean, I'm not saying that you Absolutely. should completely drown out any responses or not take feedback because that's not a very good guiding philosophy. But I think uh, if if you've, you've oriented your compass correctly mm-hmm. of what you're trying yeah. to do and you followed good, solid uh, principles and values in in the process of writing, uh, research, of thinking through, using logic and reasoning, addressing counter arguments, being thoughtful and uh, moderate and balanced. That you you can't go too far wrong. And that you, if you if you've oriented your compass that way, that you can stand by a piece of public writing and feel satisfied with it, regardless of whether someone attacks you for a prolonged period of time on a social media platform, which has definitely happened. So I like that. And I like the imagery too of the, of the compass. Um, I think that's really good, especially for our listeners who, um, you know, are making the, the trek and out into the public and, and you have many students who are publishing pieces, uh, not necessarily in the Atlantic per se, but, um, in, in many different publications. In, so. in, in great venues. And uh, we've seen students flourish in, in innumerable ways. It's really, that's actually probably one, one of the most gratifying and surprising parts of uh, beginning this journey of uh, part of the role I have at the School of Family Life is, in, is uh, directing public scholarship efforts, public writing about scholarship. 
and uh, engaging with students. And a lot of the credit goes to Julie Haupt, uh, mm-hmm. who recently passed away. Uh, but her legacy has been remarkable in that regard of helping elevate student writing, help them discover their own vi- voice, and engage in these conversations in thoughtful, uh, 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 research-based ways has been, uh, again, one of the joys of this this work that was totally unexpected. I did not have it in mind when I took this position that that would be one of the highlights. Uh, and it, it, it really, it's really a testament to the students as well, who uh, have just demonstrated an immense capacity at a young age to be able to engage constructively in what can be sometimes fraught territory, uh, but also just writing things that inform people's lives to help them live better as family members, as as uh, people trying to um, live the most uh, uh, the best lives possible, and to help others in their life do the same. And so they've really just a lot of practical, good material being put into the world by our students that I'm I'm in awe of and and just continually impressed by. Well, that is, I love that 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 positive note, um, and it's and it's great to be able to um, you know from the student side to be on the be on the other end and see many of my peers uh, uh, learning from from the best. Um, as we wrap up here, from your perspective, um, you study the law and, and families every single day, and I don't think you have to be an expert in in family law to understand that. There's a lot of challenges um, facing us today. If you could speak to um, the next generation, if you will, or or the generation you're teaching right now, what would you uh, give to them as, hey, here might be some challenges, here are some opportunities, and overall just general advice from looking back on, on your life and then looking ahead to um, based on your social science and, and your expertise in that manner? Yeah, I would... I would say that if I were to give a piece of advice, both from a, I guess, a macro perspective and then a micro perspective, from a macro perspective, there are going to be uh, lots of different trends. And uh, I would say that the, the moral zeitgeist is always going to be fluctuating. Uh, it's, it's going to have peaks and veils and vicissitudes and the, the important thing is for, I believe, students or young people or anyone really, is to be able to dedicate the time to formulate their own, their own views, not necessarily completely independent from those around them or from good sources around them, but to be able to make informed decisions about important matters and to root those in uh, enduring principles enduring values, and of course, sound research that has been tried and tested. And to be able to form those opinions and then to have the courage to be able to articulate those and to advance them, not out of a desire to be right or to exalt over others, but in a desire to help guide people toward truth, to guide people toward that which is going to benefit them and benefit society at large. And I think that can be particularly difficult um, in an environment where, uh, where I think we, we, taking a, a stand that might be unpopular, or or even you know just taking a stand in general of divulging one opinion, divulging one's opinion on particular issues, 
can feel uh, can can make people uncomfortable. And I think developing the skill to be able to number one formulate opinions that are can be deeply held. And that doesn't mean arrogance, but it means I think even greater humility that uh, to be able to try to truly understand an issue by looking at the different contours, by studying the research, by uh, striving to muster the highest level of moral reasoning to bring to bear to the issue. That going through that process and then being able to uh, hold that and, and, and advance it in thoughtful and ecumenical ways. I think that is something that I think would greatly, immensely bless those who are going to face various different changing uh, landscapes politically and morally in the, in, in the future. And I say that not because uh, to be alarmist, but because the nature of the nature of uh, mortal existence is is one of change. It's it's one of um, continual uh, change, and and sometimes that's that's renewal. That's uh, that's uh, a refreshing thing. I don't think it needs to be seen as negative. But to be able to sift through the change and the various trends and uh, 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 issues of the day, to be able to see things from a, a more objective standpoint and perhaps an even more enlightened standpoint, and then. And then stick by that. So that would that would say is one way to face challenges. You know, face and I speak in terms of moral challenges or societal challenges is to be able to try to find what the solutions are, what uh, and then be able to stand by them, even if sometimes they may not be seen as widely popular or they they may not be what people always want to hear. And that may be slightly self-serving because I I, <laughs> I I I value engaging in in those kinds of discussions, but I hope others will do the same and, and will value it as well. I think our our society, the common good, depends on it. And then uh, secondarily, on more of a personal level, I think I was given a piece of advice from a, a professor at BYU when I was a student, uh, and. Um, still teaches here as Professor Matthew Wickman uh, in the English department, who I have immense respect for and a value quite a bit. Uh, he he would talk about helping guide students with regard to finding their spiritual gifts. And that oftentimes students will think of a profession or a life path or the challenges that they face individually within uh, whatever their situation is socially or familially or, or, uh, or, or employment-wise. But uh, to rather, n- n- you know, not to dismiss the, all those challenges or issues that may arise mm-hmm. in those arenas, but to really focus on one's spiritual gifts and how to deploy them for good within those arenas. So whether uh, there's a challenge at home or there's a challenge at work or there's a challenge uh, finding work, that to think through one's spiritual gifts and incorporate them into how one is engaging in their various spheres of influence uh, really allows for kind of a solutions-oriented perspective and one that uh, I think individuals and students can feel satisfied that they're bringing unique, something unique to them to the table in the various facets of their lives. And so that's one piece of advice as you face challenges is to think, well, what spiritual gifts do I have? And how can I bring them? And it's, it may not necessarily be. Oftentimes, I think we think of spiritual gifts as well. I can play the piano before a church, re, you know, meeting. But to think in terms of 
you know, maybe I really have great interpersonal skills, or maybe what I'm good at is is one-on-one with a person, or, or maybe mm. what I'm really good at is organizing a, a situation, or maybe what I've been blessed with, or what the spiritual gifts that I that I have is is leading people, leading in a particular way. And so to try to discover those, do lots of things and experiment, and and try to see what what those spiritual gifts are, what what you're really drawn to, and what people are are drawn to you for. And then uh, try to bring those to bear on the particular challenges that you face, whether they're at the micro level or the macro level. Wow. Well, all of us listening, myself included, I and we have our work cut out for us now. We got to go <laughs> turn off the podcast and go go for a walk and reflect. Yeah, and, I think uh... <laughs> the, probably, the best advice I could offer is probably to stop listening to me <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and right go now. do something good. <laughs> No, no but, I, I appreciate you. Uh, anyone taking the time to listen to this. Well, seriously, Professor Boyd, this uh, I, I do not uh, say this lightly when I say this has really been an inspiring conversation. And I hope for our listeners, it's the same. And I think that we've talked about um, things that are uh, philosophy based and things that are action based. And I'm, I'm hoping that our listeners can engage with you and maybe sign up for your class as well. Um, but we are really grateful that you for your willingness to to join us on the podcast today, and I uh, hope we can uh, have another conversation like this again in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know more about Professor Boyd and his writing, those links will be in the show notes. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, please email us at byusflpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.